this morning. So glad to have you out at Berean Bible Fellowship and always great to be able to welcome the people of the Lord to to the house of the Lord. Thank you for finding it important uh, to recognize the Lord's Day and be in the house of the Lord. Always a great privilege to be able to gather together, see what God has for us, sing the songs, listen to the word, and I trust I can be a blessing to you again once today. I'd like you to go back to Psalm 82 for just a moment if you would. And uh, let's look there. I want to just be careful that we notice why I ask even for this to be read. It's kind of interesting, really, when you think about this psalm that uh, not necessarily one of the real well-known psalms. It, it would seem to us, and this is a human judgment, but it would seem to us to be a somewhat obscure psalm, not necessarily one that people have memory verses from or read often or think of. And I want you to know that because that's a very important thing as we look at where this is going in the New Testament. So let's have a look in verses 1 and 2, and then we'll look at the end of the psalm real quickly just to make the critical observation that we need to see why this obscure place in the Old Testament is important and how Jesus uses it and where the, this becomes absolutely the touchstone of the argument that's used in the passage that we're going to be looking at in a few moments in John chapter 10. So in verse 1, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Really easy to read a verse like that, isn't it? And just sort of skip over it. What's the reference when it says here, he judgeth among the gods? Is the Bible talking about polytheism? Of course, we know that's not true. It's certainly not true in reality. It might be true in practice in the world, but it's not true in reality. There is only one God. We know that. So what is the reference here, the fact that God judgeth among the gods? What is the reference to gods? Then we find out what that answer is in verse number 2, and it becomes clearer as the psalm progresses. Because verse 2 says, how long will ye? These are the people who are addressed and called gods. He says this, how long will ye judge unjustly? If we just stopped right there, how would we characterize the people who are called gods He's talking in this psalm about unjust judges. Unjust judges. Do you know any of them? (laughs) In fact, Jesus told a parable about that, didn't he, in the New Testament, about the parable of the unjust judge? Sometimes that happens, and that's um, a really sad thing. It's not the message this morning, but what is sort of interesting to know is, is that the powers that be are ordained of God. We know that. And so... God refers to them with what to us seems almost extravagance by referring to them as gods because he is according to them a certain respect and recognizes that the authority that they have really comes from him. And, you know, we've had a lot of focus on this recently with the Supreme Court and all this kind of thing, and it's really important for these men and it's important for us to know, you know, they answer to a higher power. And a lot of them have forgotten that. Let's look down later in the psalm. Just look at verses 6 and 7 because we don't have time to tarry here. But he says it again, and this is the explicit verse. This is the one that we're going to see a little while later in John chapter 10. Look at this. I have said ye are gods. So here he repeats this. And all of you are children or literally sons of the Most High. But he says, ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. It's just a reminder that God is going to bring these people up short and going to bring them to heal one day in judgment. All right, now, we did that. Let's go over to Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, let's go over to John chapter 10. 
We probably don't need this again, but it was important to see this back in the Old Testament so you understand where the reference is, where this is coming from. It'll figure into what we talk about in the message today. John chapter 10. Really, now I want to read for you the scripture that's our text. So if you don't mind, pay careful attention, beginning verse number 22 of John chapter 10. And John writes as follows, and he says, And it was at Jerusalem at the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him, and, he, and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them. Now, pay careful attention and remember your Psalm 82. Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, Thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe me not, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. We're going to end here with our reading, but I'm going to ask you to join me. I know we prayed a couple of times, but let's bow our heads and pray one more time that God will speak to us and encourage us. Our Father, we thank you that we live in a free land and that we have access to the Word of God. And we're so grateful for that. Lord, sometimes we ponder the trajectory that America is on and wonder just how long our nation can really hold together. And we think back of something that you said back in that Psalm 82 where it talks about it seems as if the foundations, the very foundations of the world are out of course. And we realize that because many of the leaders and people who are in authority in our country, though all of that has been ordained by you and you control that, they are not people who know you. And in our land is a great forsaking. And I pray, Father, that you would just encourage us to be faithful. Help us to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, as you have called us to be. And grant that in the furtherance of that calling, that you will bless us as we listen this morning. Help us to be nourished up in the words of sound doctrine. Help us to understand the passage that we're looking at. But more importantly, rather than just dissecting it and knowing all of its uh, ins and outs, may we also have food for our hearts and lives, practical things that we'll be able to take with us. And may the impact and blessing of the message as you have led in this, uh, may it come to us today because of your ministry and because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. 
And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. For I pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, I was here about a month ago. Thank you for inviting me back. But I would like to remind you that I introduced you to a series of messages that I've been working on called Penetrating Questions of Jesus, looking at the questions that Jesus asked. He asked them to his friends. He asked them to the disciples. He asked them to his opponents. He asked them to ordinary people. And the one that I brought to you from John's Gospel last time, I believe, was in chapter 6 and verse 67. I was thinking about that a little bit during the Sunday school. You remember that? Will ye also go away? And how uh, Brother Lee said there, I mentioned it, first blush. Well, you could think about at first glance, maybe, you could think about the fact that that would seem rather discouraging, wouldn't it? I mean, Jesus is looking at these people who profess to be his disciples. Many of them are no longer following him. And then he turns to the 12 and he says, will ye also go away? And, of course, the, the message there is about commitment and all of those types of things. Don't have time to go back over that ground. But I want to bring you to one today, which comes up now in chapter 10 of John. We actually find the question in verse number 34. And I want you to focus on this particular question because this question is asked by Jesus in one form or another, whether as a question or sometimes as a statement, some 20 times during the course of his ministry. And it says this, is it not written in your law? In other words, Jesus was focusing them back on the word of God. Is it not written in your law? Now this particular story that we have read about this morning, a controversy is afoot. Nothing too much new about that. Jesus was controversial. And I don't say that in a wrong sense, just in an objective sense. The Jews challenged Jesus. They did not accept his claims to being the Messiah. You have that going on in this passage. They, they sensed, and accurately so, that Jesus was claiming a relationship to God that is unlike any other. He claimed to be God's son, and they understood what the implications of that. It's a shame, really, that we have so much controversy even today about who Jesus is, if you think about this. Who is Jesus? If you ask the average man that, you'll get all kinds of answers. Some people will say, well, he's a good man. Other people will say, well, he was a prophet. Other people say, well, he, he came to show us God's love. And boy, if you walk up to somebody and say, who is Jesus? And they say, well, he was the son of God, born of the Virgin Mary. Whoa, now you've got somebody who really understands what the Bible teaches. And we have to believe that, that if thou shalt uh, believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says, thou shalt be saved. So if we don't believe in Jesus Christ and understand who he really is, that he's our Savior, that he's God manifest in the flesh, that he came in this, into this world to die on the cross for sinners and to make possible eternal life, if we don't understand that and believe that, we can't be saved. But there's so much confusion is it possible, this is kind of a question I would like to ask, is it possible to have any place you can go and to get a reliable answer? Well, you say, I know somebody that he's pretty smart. I guess I'll go ask him. Well, there's a lot of smart people that are often wrong. The president that we had before, the one we had now, I think is an extremely intelligent man. He was wrong most of the time, I feel. And excuse me, I didn't mean to bring politics into things. It's just that he's a very intelligent man. 
But you can often be wrong. Intelligence doesn't necessarily equate to being right. So is there a place we can go when we have questions about spiritual matters, when we have questions about who is Jesus, when we have questions about how should we live our life, is there a place we can go and get a solid answer to that? Because there's a lot of controversy about these questions and there's a lot of confusion in the world in which we live today. The point is that Jesus says yes. He points to the absolute authority of the Bible. When there's a question, Jesus says, about who I am, when there's a question, if we broaden that out, about spiritual matters, what's written in the Word? What's written in your law? That's the place that we need to go back to, and it's the only place that we can really count on not to be wrong. And you're going to see that here in just a few moments. In verses 30 to 33, I want to talk a little bit about the argument that's going on here, because there is a controversy. Jesus makes a particular argument in order to defend his claims, and I think in order to do justice to the context, we do need a few moments to look at this so that we don't just do short shrift. But he claimed to be the Son of God. Verse number 36, look at this. He says it in his own words, and he understands that that's what they're questioning. Say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God. Well, I'm sorry to inform the Jehovah's Witnesses and other people who don't know this, but it's true. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. If he had not claimed to be the Son of God in a unique sense that essentially meant that he was also God come in the flesh, that he was co-equal with the Father, if he were not claiming that, the Jews would not have taken up stones to stone him. They understood explicitly what he was trying to say. They didn't accept it, which is why they had the problem. Now, what, at what juncture in the story, this is kind of an interesting thing to look at, at what juncture in the story did the sense of all of this, because they knew that he was claiming this, but at what point does it reach a boiling point so that they pick up stones to stone him? Well, he says this, verse 26, but ye believe not, though they didn't accept his claims, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you, and he said this, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Boy, that's a claim, isn't it? That's a claim. If somebody walked up to you on the street and told you they had the power to give you eternal life, what would you think? I think you're nuts. But Jesus made that claim. He said, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. He goes on to say, which was something that the Jews would certainly have agreed with, my Father, that is God, which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Well, no one would question that. But then he drops the bomb. I and my Father are one. So if you want to know what the authority is, if you want to know what the validity is behind the claim of Jesus, when he offers me eternal life, he offers you eternal life. He makes a promise. So we, beloved, this is a, a verse that is known to many of us. We often appeal to this verse as a verse for eternal security, justly so. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. But actually, the Greek there is very strong. They shall in no case perish. 
Well, what's behind that claim? No one would doubt very much if he said that about God being able to do that, but then he says, I and my Father are one. I'd like to tell you something that is so neat about verse number 30. This, the, the accuracy of the Word of God, the precision of the Word of God, is just spectacular. It's something that maybe we wouldn't just catch by looking at the English. But when you look at this, it's very interesting, the last word in the verse, one. Well, if you were to look at this in the original language, it's neuter and gender. So if we were going to try to bring that out, now you can kind of guess why the translators didn't do it this way, because this might make you think of the right thing, it might not make you think of the right thing. But if I were going to try to bring out the force of that to you this morning, I would put it this way. I and my Father are one thing. So maybe you see why the translators didn't do that, because they didn't want us to think of God as a thing. But see, if Jesus had used the masculine, if this had been in the masculine gender here, what Jesus would have been saying is this, I and my Father are one person. That's not true. Right? Because we believe in one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Is that not right? That you folks believe that here, right, at Berean? Sure you do. You've had good preachers that have taught you the Word of God. We believe in one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are co-eternal. They are co-essential. They are co-equal. And what Jesus is saying here when he says, I and my Father are one thing, he's saying, my Father and I share the same essence. We are of one. We are the same thing. We are both deity. They got that. He wasn't claiming to be the same person as the Father. He's not. He was claiming to be God. That was the boiling point. They got exactly what he was saying. Then took up the st they stones to stone him. Now, how does Jesus respond to this? Well, he talks about the works that he's shown them. But eventually, he gets down to where we're looking at, this place that he quotes from, as I say, kind of an obscure psalm, which, again, is neat because even those places that we think about in the Bible that are obscure, the Jews knew them because they are the Scripture. And so he says, isn't it written in your law, I said ye are gods? And then he goes on to say, so if he called and we saw who these people were. They were unjust judges. He says, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came. Because Psalm 82.6, we might think of it as an obscure psalm, but Jesus says it's the word of God. You see that right in the verse here. Look at your verse again. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came. Though even the places that we think of as obscure are the word of God. And the scripture cannot be broken. Say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and said unto the world, Thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God. Now, you might have sensed at this point, and if you have, you're right on top of this. You might have sensed, well, is Jesus sort of using an argument that hangs on a technicality? And the answer to that is yes, he is. He is using an argument that sort of hangs on a technicality on the surface. When you first look at it, that's true. What's really interesting about it is, is that the rabbis delighted in arguments like that. So there's a sense in which Jesus turned their way of dealing with the scripture on them, sort of turned it, turned it right back on them. What he's saying on the surface, the technicality would simply be this. Look, if you've got people in the Old Testament 
and they were people. And God magnified their office and recognized and respected where they were by, and called them gods in order to do that. There's precedent for this. How can you say that I'm blaspheming because I'm doing something similar? Jesus was doing more. They understood that. But he is more. Notice this in verse 36. Of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world. He's not an unjust judge. He is the one whom God has sent into this world to be our Savior from our sins. But, the technicality aside, okay, you've heard that part of it now. What does it all really rest on? Because there's something a whole lot more important going on here than any technicality. And this is really where the heart of this message comes in at. If he called them, verse 35, gods unto whom the word of God, and what's the next sentence say? And the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. See, Jesus' argument may be a technical one but it rests on a far deeper, more important principle, and that principle is the scripture cannot be broken. Now let's think about that for a minute, because that's where we really need to park for just a few moments. The scripture cannot be broken. I want to get to that, and I want to develop that, and that's really the heart of why I'm here this morning. But before we move off of that, I just want to say one more thing. You know, if you don't get anything else out of what Jesus has done to this point, you have to get this. And that is that, you know, Jesus was always ready. And you and I are also commanded to be ready. Peter says that each of us is to be ready to give an answer. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, it says in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. And be ready, be prepared. That's what that word ready means. Be prepared. Be always prepared to give an answer to every man who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you, in meekness and in fear. All right, what's the context of 1 Peter? Suffering. So when some, someone comes up to you and you have a situation and they just don't understand how you're able to have peace. They just don't understand how you have grace. They see you conducting yourself in a way that's just different from the way that people in the world, something comes to them, a suffering type of experience, and they lash out with all kinds of things like it's unfair and, and why did God let this happen to me and all this type of thing. And now they see something different in you. Well, are you ready to capitalize on that opportunity when God gives it to you? Do you have something you can say to explain to them why it's different for you? You know, I find this about speaking for the Lord. The opportunities just seem to come and you don't, if you're not careful, you'll blink twice and they're gone. You're just going along and if you're not really soul conscious and if you're not prepared First thing you know, a little turn of phrase, something someone says, there's an opportunity that, to say something, to put in a little witness there. And the first thing you know, if you're not ready and don't recognize it for what it is, it's past. And you later you say to yourself, I just wish that I had this or that. But you know, Jesus was always ready and Jesus always had a scripture. Even places in the Old Testament that seem obscure, Jesus knew them. What about when the devil came to Jesus 
and tempted him. He always had a scripture, didn't he? He said, you're hungry, right? Why don't you turn these stones into bread? He said, it is written, thou shalt not, he said, it is written, man shall live by bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Could you have done that? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? <laughs> and then it goes on, and he tempted him to cast himself down from the temple and make a big scene, make a big splash. Then they'll recognize that you're the son of God. He said, oh, you can't do that. It's not written. It's written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He takes him up into a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, I can give you these because they've been delivered to me. Isn't that what you want anyway? You came, claim to be a king and you are a king. I can give you all of this. Just fall down and worship me. No, you can't do that because the Bible says, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Do you sort of see the point? I mean, Jesus was always ready. And you say, well, my excuse is I'm not Jesus. Yeah, I know, but the point is still very much there, that we are to be prepared. We should know this book. There's not any real excuse for us not to, especially in the common things in which God gives us opportunities to know the gospel, I was reading some time ago about a man by the name of William Smith. Probably not a real known name, but he was a man who lived back in 19th century England. Why he's important or why he's known to some is because he made a contribution concerning maps that changed the world in many respects. And maps were not new. You're saying, well, they had maps way before the 19th century. And that's true, they did. And you're thinking about a map and you're thinking about a surface map. But what if a man could give you a map that was geological in nature? What if somebody possessed the ability to tell you coal will be over here, or this is a great light, there's a great likelihood that you might find oil here, or there's a great likelihood that there might be gold here. Think about before people could do something like that, you basically just sort of had to, you know, like the Beverly Hillbillies, remember that years ago, that crazy thing, and the guy shoots and up from the ground come a bubbling crude? Well, <laughs> they obviously till that happened, they didn't know that was there, right? Until somebody sees gold glimmering in the river or sees it, it's something in a rock, they didn't know it was there. But see, Smith uh, studied fossils and he studied rock layers. He came to some conclusions. He was able to develop a, ge a geological map. The first time that England, Scotland and, Scotland, and Wales had anything like that, he came up with it and it gave people the opportunity to see beneath the surface. Can you imagine what that would involve? And I'm afraid, beloved, that most of us are just still on the surface when it comes to this. And there's so much in this book. I mean, you can study this book, and I'll tell you from years of experience with doing this, you can preach this book. You can preach this book for your whole life. You can study this book for your whole life, and you still won't have it all. This, this book is inexhaustible. And we're going to see why all that's true here as we keep on talking. But let's talk about this argument. Put this argument aside. Let's see how Jesus answered in this this, this verse upon which really, this principle on which the whole thing hinges, the scripture cannot be broken. Why is that so important? Well, because if you think about it, whether it's who Jesus is, whether it's that question, or any other question that comes up, people are often wrong. In fact, people are most of the time wrong, it seems like. <laughs> you just listen to, them, listen to these Hollywood stars. They don't ever get it right, do they? 
It's just not many of them do anyway. I don't listen to them anymore. I think I made the remark. I don't know if it was here or somewhere else, but I, I made the remark, you know, I listen to the news at a date and time of my choosing. I don't turn it on at 6.30. I don't turn it on at 7. We don't even get that. I can't think of a better way to discourage yourself. That's like taking a, not an antidepressant, but a depressant. I can't imagine anything that would be more discouraging than to listen to that. It's not news, it's commentary, if not propaganda. So if I'm going to listen to the news, I have sources that I have some degree of trust in. I realize they all have their perspective. And I'm going to look at it at the, on the computer, and I'll read what I want, and I'll turn it off when I want. People are often wrong. But the scriptures aren't wrong. The scriptures can't be broken, the Bible says. Now, that's an interesting word, broken. Where else do we find that in the Bible? Well, you find that exact word. It's the same original word, not just the same English word, but it's translated the same way. You find it in Acts chapter 27 and verse 41. Let me tell you what that is so that in the interest of time we, we don't turn to that place. But Acts 27 records the shipwreck of the Apostle Paul when he was on his way to Rome. You familiar with the story? So after all, all these days at sea in this incredible Uroquillo, this great wind that came on them, they finally get to this little island. And it's dark. They sense that land is near. They throw some, some weights over the side, and they start sounding, and, and they can tell that the bottom is coming up fast. But they can't see. They didn't have channel markers and lights like we do today, you know, not like that. And uh, so they cast three anchors or whatever, four anchors out of the stern, and they hoped for day. When it got to be day, they saw a place they thought they could wedge and take the ship in. They went into a place where the Bible says in that verse, two seas met. When they got there, there was a sandbar, and the bow of the ship stuck fast. And I don't know if anybody here has ever had that experience. I have because I grew up along the coast. And I'm telling you when that happens, the next thing that happens can really be tragic, and it is in this case. Because <clears throat> if you've got waves coming in, I know many of you have been to the beach. If you've got decent waves coming in and you take a, a boat into the ocean, the first thing you know, those, those waves are pounding the stern of the boat. And if you're not careful, if you've got enough water out there and you don't have enough transom in the back of the boat, the first thing you know, that those waves come over and those waves come over and it'll sink your boat right then and there. You're done. Well, then it says the stern, the hinder part of the boat, was broken with the violence of the waves. Well, beloved, I'm here to tell you something. There have been many waves of violence unleashed upon the word of God. Down through the years, many people have attempted to destroy this book. There have been critics. There have been cynics. There have been unbelievers. There have been people who actually went on campaigns to eradicate the word of God. Don't kid yourself. They're tightening up in China right now. In some of these places, there's a little opportunity. I can remember going to Romania. And uh, there was a, a day and time when people went into Romania and they had to hide anything, Bible, Christian literature, to hide that in the car. Now you don't have to be so concerned about that. But there have been people down through the years who have tried to destroy the Bible, and guess what? The Bible is still here. 
I had to laugh. I, I just looked at my wife and just kind of smiled. She didn't know what I was smiling at, but I was thinking of a closing song for this morning, and I had the Bible stance. Brother Mark had that for the opening. So we must, we must be on the same wavelength. The Bible stands. That's good. The scriptures cannot be broken. I don't care what attacks are unleashed on the Bible. The scriptures cannot be broken. It is indestructible. And why is that so? Because, number one, it's inspired. This is not just the meanderings of people. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is, it's breathed out by God and is profitable. We heard that earlier. The scripture came not, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved, as they were borne along by the Holy Spirit. Because it's inspired. We also know of the Bible that it will never perish. I said before it was indestructible, but the Bible promises that for itself. Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, is thy word settled in heaven. The Bible is inerrant. You know, anytime you're talking about doctrinal statements and what you believe about the Bible, it's very important not just to say that the Bible, you believe the Bible to be infallible. We do believe that. I'll come to that in a moment. It's important to say that we believe that the Bible is inerrant. And the reason for that is, is when we talk about inerrant, we're talking about the very words that God gave. That what we're talking about is not just that God gave the concepts that are in the Bible. We're talking about the fact that God gave the text that's in the Bible. God gave the words that are in the Bible in the original what we call the original autographs and the original manuscripts. When those were originally given, those were breathed out by God. He gave, even though human writers and their personalities were involved. You know, we had an interesting question in Sunday school this morning about who wrote Hebrews. Well, you can see the personality of the New Testament reflectors, uh, writers reflected in their writings. And God worked through Paul and God worked through Peter and that God worked through John. When you read those books, they're different books. You can tell they're different people who wrote those books. Different backgrounds, different personalities. And God, by the supernatural process of inspiration, somehow is able to capture and not destroy that person's personality while at the same time directing in such a way that the words that come out are the words that God has chosen. Isn't that incredible? To accomplish both so that these people were not just robots? but God actually used them to write as they thought, but directed those thoughts and their personalities and backgrounds, that the very words that he intended were what they wrote and what was recorded for us in the scripture. Psalm, or Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is pure. The Bible is infallible. That is to say, when the Bible speaks, it never makes mistakes. Jesus said this in John 17, 17. He said, thy word is truth. Do you ever think about this? You know, the Bible really isn't written to be a text, a science textbook. Right? I mean, if you were looking for a textbook for whatever science class that you might want to teach in school, <clears throat> you wouldn't necessarily pick the Bible. That's not the reason the Bible was written. <clears throat> but I'll tell you this, if the Bible chooses to speak about a matter of science, it never makes a mistake. 
which means that when the question of human origins comes up and we wonder, well, how did we all get here? That's another question, isn't it? I mean, isn't that another question that's in out there? All people have all kinds of ideas. And it's controversial. If you bring this up, it's controversial. It's about all. But if the Bible chooses to address that subject, it does so without making any mistakes. That's why we know that how the world got here was that God flung it off his fingertips. He spoke and it was so. He did that in seven literal days. And all that we see, we understand, was formed by the word of God. We understand that by faith. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us this. So Jesus made everything depend on the Bible. All questions of life. All questions of faith and practice. That's something else that you often see, and well you should, when you look at a doctrinal statement for a church, that we believe the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. So if I want to know what to believe, this settles it. All matters of faith and practice. If I want to know what how to apply and figure out how to live. That's practice. And you know what, beloved? The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. What's that mean? It means that in the Bible, you're either going to find a precept or a principle. What's the Bible have to say about cigarettes? Somebody comes along and says, well, you can't find any place in the Bible cigarettes are mentioned. You have me there, it doesn't. But there are principles that will help us answer that question, are there not? So you know what? It really doesn't matter whether or not, and the Bible has to be that way. And the reason the Bible has to be that way is how, and Revelation gives you some idea of that, how somebody living 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, writing these things, isn't going to necessarily see or know the things that are beyond them, but they can give scriptures that deal with those principles. And that's what God has done in his word. The Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Jesus based his ministry upon it, and beloved, so should we. The church, Paul told Timothy, is the pillar and ground of the truth. That is that the church is here not only to believe the Bible and to be certain that everything we do are doctrines that we say that we believe. The foundation of those is the Bible. It must be the Bible. Or we aren't any different or better than anything else that's out there. The pillar and ground of the truth. So the church is grounded and founded, that is to say, on the Bible, but the church is also the pillar. Now, we just had a hurricane hit down there, what, Panama City, I guess. Is that the one that took that pretty much head on? Well, see, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, and... So I learned at an early age what hurricanes were. And back in the 60s, I can remember Gracie and Cindy. And if you ever go back and, and if you take, uh, go out into Charleston Harbor, you'll find some people call them breakwaters. We always called them jetties. But you go out there and, and, and they've got these places where they just went and dot, dumped huge rocks. I'll tell you what, the waves can beat and beat and beat and beat on those things, and they don't move them. And that's what the church is designed to be. We are here not only to base what we do on the Bible, we are here to defend and proclaim the Bible to people. 
our ministry. Jesus based his entire ministry on it. He was known as the teacher. He taught the word of God. He preached the word of God. He based his ministry upon it. So should we. He used it to settle, and this is where I have to end, but I have a couple of these I just want you to consider with me. So I'm, these are going to be teasers because I don't have time to really develop them. But Jesus used it to settle practical questions and disputes, and so should we. It shouldn't just be what we think. It should be what we think the Bible says to the best of our ability to understand it. I mentioned to you before, some 20 times in the Gospels, whether in questions or in statement form, you have Jesus saying things like, isn't it written? Haven't you read? It was the equivalent of the Old Testament prophets saying, thus saith the Lord. All right? Just do this for me, if you will. We'll go as quickly as we absolutely can so that we're not making this overly long. But let's look at it in the Bible. I will ask you now to turn. Look at Luke chapter 10. We're just going to look at a couple of references, and we'll finish this. So if someone were to come up to you and ask you a question that we started out with earlier, like, well, how can a person be saved then? How can you have eternal life? How would you answer that? Well, in verse 25 of chapter 10 of Luke, a man did that with Jesus. A certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Same thing, right? How can I be saved? What did Jesus do? Look at verse 26. This is what I want you to see. He said unto him, What is written in the law? Same thing we've got here. Isn't it written in your law? So if I answer that question for someone, how can a person be saved? Here's where I need to answer that from. And does this book tell us that? Boy, it sure does. It sure does. In fact, this book is the only book that tells you that the way to be saved is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You only find that message in this book. Every other religion in the world is going to tell you something which was exactly what was in the concept of this lawyer. What do I do? The Bible says you don't do. The Bible says it's done. The Bible says you don't try. You trust. What do you trust in? The finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Jesus said it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The early church preached it and taught it. They said that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul told us, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. The Bible has the answer. We just need to declare that to people. Let the Holy Spirit work in their hearts. This is not one that I want to be distracted on, so I'm glad I don't have time. But turn back to Matthew and we'll just at least look at it because these questions do come up. So... I at least pay passing, ref or passing uh, uh, acknowledgement to this. And sometimes you get a question, and this is a matter of practice. Sometimes you get a question about, well, what's right to do on Sunday? Now, I'm not looking to get into that minefield. I'm only trying to say, here's how Jesus answered it. His disciples, Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, they were passing through the grain fields on Sunday. That's what we would say. It was the Sabbath. We would think of our day, which is Sunday. 
They plucked the ears of grain and began to do this in their hands so that they could eat them. They were hungry. And right away, the Pharisees jumped on Jesus and said, your disciples are doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath day. You're breaking the Sabbath. What did Jesus say? Verse 3. But he said unto them, have you not read? Oh. Well, I want to know what's proper practice for the Lord's day. I need to find some way to base it on this. That's what he was saying. Drop down to verse 5. He does the same thing. Or have you not read in the law? And he gives another example. See what I'm saying, folks? Over and over again. Let's look at another one. What about human sexuality? Go to chapter 19 in Matthew. They came to him one day with a question about marriage. What do you believe about marriage? Lots of folks have difficulties in their marriage, troubles in their marriage. It's a very popular way to reach out to people because it's a practical thing, you know, how to, how to have a successful marriage, and, and people are interested in this. Well, again, the Pharisees, 19.3, came to Jesus, tempting him, saying, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? They were basically asking, what do you believe about marriage? What kind of marriage view you have? High view, low view? Today, people don't seem to even worry about marriage. But if you do believe in marriage, what kind of a view do you have of it? Is it just a convenience? I, you know, I've seen people marry for that reason. Honest to goodness, I have. Better Social Security benefits or something like that. I've seen this happen before. What kind of view of marriage do you have? Well, Jesus said, if you have that question, look at verse 4. He answered and said unto them, have you not read? If you want to know what to believe about marriage, is, let me pause and look up here at me. Is this controversial today? Is this controversial today? Absolutely. So how do you and I find our way? How do you and I know that what we're talking about is true? How do we take a position on this, not unkindly, but how do we take a position and have confidence? Well, he said it to them. Look at this. Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Oh. So marriage consists of a covenant between one naturally born man and one naturally born woman. Talking about unjust judges, it was the recently retired Judge Kennedy who wrote the opinion for Ogergefell or whatever the guy's name was versus whoever, the Supreme Court case that he wrote the opinion that legalized same-sex marriage in the United States. He's an unjust judge. He's going to answer to a higher power. Because really what, at the end of the day, what matters is not what Judge Kennedy thinks. What matters at the end of the day is what does God think and what does God say. But look, folks, we're not trying to be out here unkind and self-righteous, but we are looking to know what to base our lives on. And if I'm a young man growing up, I'm a young woman growing up, and, and I have some of these questions. I fully believe people have some of these questions. They have temptations. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to grow up and conduct myself? The same sex and opposite sex? Well... The Bible teaches if I was born a boy, I'm a boy. And I have to accept that, and I have to be submissive to that. And I have to understand, God made me that way. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I might not be the same as this boy over here, Charles Atlas with the world on his shoulders. But I was made to be a man. That's my role in life, if I'm a lady. That's my role. 
And when it comes time to become interested in matters of sex, well, God made the perfect place for that, and it's in marriage, and that's what he tells us. So the Bible has answers. That's what Jesus said. What do you find written in the Bible? That's where we need to be. What about life after death? Only one or two more of these and we'll finish. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. You ever had that question come up to you before? Or had somebody just say to you before, well, you know, I just believe that when you're dead, you're dead, and that's the end. You hear that all the time. A lot of doctors will tell you that. You know, when, you know just... They're not equipped. They might be equipped to deal with medical issues, but they're not equipped to deal with spiritual issues. Many of them are not. It's been my privilege to know some Christian doctors, and boy, I'll tell you, that's, that's tremendous. Or others that at least were not hostile, so much of science, in other words, so much of, of education with science did not necessarily take away from them a certain respect, and they've seen prayers answered before, and they have some respect for that, even though they might not be born again, well, here's a question that came up that the Sadducees really thought they had Jesus on this one. They told this, concocted this story about this guy that, well, he died so his brother took the wife. That was the law of leveret marriage in the Old Testament. And then he died, and the next guy that was the brother, the next one down the road. They did this seven times. It's a wonder the poor woman. I just read that, and I think to themselves, what a, what a fanciful story. Jesus said in verse 29, well, the, your problem is you err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And that's the whole problem with our society. And half the time, it's the whole problem with the church. We err because we don't know the scriptures. And then he says this, but it's touching the resurrection. If you want to know, verse 31, if there's a resurrection from the dead. See, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They were wrong. Verse 31 says, but if you want to know what to believe about that, have ye not read? That's where you'll find the answer, beloved. Is there, is there life after death, or do we just die and go in the ground, and that's the end, and we're dead? No, that isn't the way it works. Jesus said this, that which is spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Boy, talking about taking an argument that turns on a phrase. But it's an obvious one, really. God never said, I was the God of Abraham. He never said, I was the God of Isaac, like they were dead and gone out of existence. He said, I am. Because they might be dead, but they aren't gone out of existence. I'll tell you that. They're in the presence of God right now. They have a good deal going. You come full circle to where we started out this morning. What to believe about Jesus, and the Bible settles that for us. Beloved, I just want to us to understand, you know, you'll encounter many people, and I sympathize to some extent with this. They're a lot like Pontius Pilate was. He was cynical. Jesus said to him, for this cause was I born, and to this end came I into the world to bear witness of the truth. Do you remember that? Might not be what you were thinking Jesus was going to say to him, but that's what he said. To this end was I born, and for this end came I into the world to bear witness to the truth. Pilate heard that word truth, and he looked back at Jesus, and he said, Ah, what is truth? He was cynical. Why? Well, because he was a politician. And by definition, they don't worry too much about the truth. Most of them. They worry about the next election, but they don't worry too much about the truth. And it's very easy, you know, I mean, when you're out there and you see how readily people lie and when you see how readily people, it's like in these confirmation hearings, it, it really wasn't important 
what was going on, it was important, your agenda, what you were trying to accomplish by manipulating certain information. So it's pretty easy for me to understand how people could be cynical about this, but you know we have to lovingly confront them with the truth of God's word. See, our problem today is not that we don't have the Bible. Our problem today is that we neglect the Bible, we don't share the Bible, and sometimes we don't heed it ourselves. And we don't need to be unkind to people. We don't need to be abrasive to people. I think people, like I said earlier, who struggle with some of these questions about sexuality and so forth, well, we need to understand that this society, society has become so saturated with all of that stuff, and so much of that stuff now is just portrayed on television as normal. Well, it's no wonder people are all jumbled up and have questions, especially when they don't come out of traditional homes. We have to be compassionate with these people, but you know, if you just keep showing them the Word of God, and you just keep showing them a consistent life lived based on the word of God, then let me end with this little story. This comes from the life of John Wesley, actually. But you know he was a circuit-riding preacher, and one night he was returning from a meeting. It was dark, and a man held him up. Well, Wesley didn't have much money. I guess <laughs> I could make a comment. I won't, but he didn't have much money. So out of his pocket, he had, you know, uh, some, just some random gospel material, maybe some crumpled up tracks, we might think, and a little bit of money. So whatever he had, the money he gave the guy. The guy turned around to probably disappointed, and oh, got another preacher tonight. <laughs> he probably turned around disappointed, and Wesley said, wait, don't go, I have something more to give you. And the guy turned around and was kind of surprised. And Wesley said, you know, there may come a day when you regret the kind of life you're living. If you do, I just want you to remember. If that day, he said, ever comes, I just want you to remember something. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses from all sin. And it was over. The guy left. Years later, Wesley was holding a meeting. A man came up to him at the end of the service. He was a successful businessman. He said, you probably don't remember me, but he said, I'm the guy that you sold that night. The guy that held you up, the guy that told you, you told that night that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses from all sin. And he said, now I'm a successful businessman and I owe it all to you. Wesley said, no, you don't owe it all to me. He said, you owe it to God and to his son. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. Beloved, that's where we need to be. We just need to be able to give people the word of God. Believe it ourselves, live it ourselves, share it with others in a compassionate, loving way, and let it do its work. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you today for the, the great treasure that we have in the Bible.